3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays our respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. You're listening to Summer Programming on 3CR 855 AM's Thursday Breakfast Show. This is going to be our last summer special for the holiday period, and I hope everyone has had the opportunity to get a bit of rest to rejuvenate ourselves for ongoing struggle, especially in solidarity with Palestine. And that's something that's going to feature in our summer special for today, which is really focused on grassroots community organizing and taking action from where you are. And so I've put together a selection of some excellent interviews that we had across the end of last year that showcase the power of community building and organizing from where you're at to take action, whether direct or otherwise, to affect change where you are, to fight against injustice, and to stand on the right side of history, and as I mentioned in particular with Palestine. We've got a great lineup of previous interviews that we've done over the past few months, and first up you're going to hear a conversation between Leela and a member of Building Unity Against Fascism, which is a study circle co-hosted by Radical Women and the Freedom Socialist Party in Reservoir, uh, looking at community education about radical struggle to help equip people to take action from where they are. After that, we're going to hear an interview that uh, Inez did with Ahmed Barakat, who's an activist, writer, and University of Melbourne PhD student involved in University of Melbourne for Palestine's organizing group, and has also been involved in Palestinian activism on campus for years. And they talked about the Lockheed Martin campaign aiming to get the University of Melbourne to divest from its partnership with war profiteer Lockheed Martin. After that, you're going to hear a segment that Spike recorded. It's the first of a three-part interview uh, with James, who's an activist from Blockade Australia, discussing uh, Blockade Australia's mission, uh, you know, the reason for James's involvement with that organization and the importance of a commitment to social and environmental justice and direct action as a part of that. Second last, you're going to hear a lovely interview that Leela did late last year with Bugs, who is a marshal who has been involved in marshalling at the protests in solidarity with Palestine. And this is a really excellent little primer uh, about what to expect if you're going to join in and uh, volunteer to be a marshal. I think it's a really wonderful introduction for folks uh, who haven't marshaled before to think about whether that's something they'd like to do. And as Bugs mentioned, uh, you know, it's not something that you have to stay involved with if you feel uncomfortable at any point or if you want to step away. You just have to communicate clearly. But it is a really wonderful way to help keep our protests safe and to make sure that our actions achieve what they set out to achieve instead of getting derailed by disruptions on the side. And finally, 
uh, you're going to hear an interview that I did late last year on the 30th of November with Carmen, who's one of the activists who participated in the blockade of the access road to the Pine Gap military facility, which is situated on Arundel land outside of Mbanto Alice Springs. And we basically talked about the importance of direct action and the role of the Pine Gap military facility in Israel's ongoing genocide of Palestinians. So stay tuned for all of that. And once again, you're listening to Summer Programming on 3CR 855 AM. Have you heard it on the news About this fascist group thing Even men with racist views Spread it all across the land They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. In our next conversation, we will be hearing more about Building Unity Against Fascism, a four-session study circle co-hosted by Radical Woman and Freedom Socialist Party in Reservoir. Immersed in the daily fight against racism, sexism, homophobia, anti-trans bigotry and labour exploitation, Radical Woman believes in multi-issue organising around the needs of the most marginalised. The Freedom Socialist Party is a feminist working class organisation fighting for an end to all capitalist exploitation and oppression. Good morning, Debbie, and welcome to oh, Thursday good Breakfast. Good morning, Leela. Good Thank morning. You Thank you so much for joining us bright and early. Um, Pleasure. Up, I wanted to ask about some of the context behind this study circle. So what motivated this project and what are some of its goals? Yes, well, um, as listeners are um, probably fully aware that fascists are in the open and very combative, um, they resurfaced about eight years ago targeting Muslims, and now they're aggressively going after trans and queer people, First Nations, Jews, immigrants, the left, and so on, especially since last December in Australia and in Melbourne, um, culminating recently in uh, the attack on Cafe Gummo in Thornbury and threat, that very threatening video to Lydia, Lydia Thorpe. So, um, you know, we've got the economic conditions now, the cost of living crisis that's breeding this, this violent scapegoating. And um, so what we're trying to do with the study group is address this and look at what's the relationship between fascist gangs that we're seeing and fascism itself and um, to be clear on what fascism is, what it isn't, um, what's behind it, and why we need to stop the fascists organizing now while they're small, um, to look at how we build a united front, which is pretty vital right now, and um, just look to history to know all of this a lot better, what's happening now and what we should be doing. Mm, yeah, so speaking to that um, idea of looking to history, I'm curious to know a bit more about the actual text 
building mm. uni- unity against fascism that the study circle is based around. Can you tell us what this text focuses on and the relevance of these writings when reflecting on our local and contemporary manifestations of fascism? Yes, um, the text is called Building Unity Against Fascism, and it's a collection of Marxist writings. Um, uh, and they're, they're Marxists who are in the thick of the rise of fascism from the 1920s to the 1970s. So people like Clara Zetkin in Germany, Ted Grant in Great Britain, James P. Cannon in the United States. And um, these were not only analysts, but they were organizers against fascism. Um, so in this book, uh, we get to learn about the economic and social conditions that existed in those periods. Um, we see who were behind this force that's just so extreme, extreme enough to break the working class's capacity to organize and resist. I mean, we are talking about concentration camps and gas chambers. Um, why did the working class, particularly the trade unions and the left, fail to stop fascism in Germany and Italy is something that we'll get to learn. And what what are lessons there for, for us to take today? So that's pretty much it's a it's a little book, but it's packed with all of this really important um, analysis and information. Yeah, um, it sounds like we've got a lot to learn from those histories, and it's really good to hear that Absolutely. you're getting them out there. Now, next, I wanted to move on to what a study session might actually look like. Um, can I drop in if I haven't read the text? And what options do you have for folks who can't make it in person? Right. Well, um, now, first of all, yes, you can definitely drop in not having read the text. Um, but uh, first of all, it's in person, but it's also online. Um, we have a study guide, which uh, sets out the theme of each of the six sessions and the readings. Um, we have people who have volunteered to lead each session, and so um, what they do is they come up with questions so that um, the rest of us can prepare for a good discussion um, and everybody can participate. If you drop in, that's fine, absolutely, and participate. And um, anybody dropping in would, I'm sure, definitely want to grab the book and the study guide and questions for the, you know, future sessions. Um, and, again, people who cannot attend in person can just uh, join online, and we've got, you know, the registration links for doing that. So it's there for to make it easy accessible um, for everybody who wants to be part of it. Yeah, amazing. And that's um, hosted at Solidarity Salon in Reservoir. So just -hmm. to follow that up, I was wondering if there are any public transport options to actually get there that you know of. For sure, yes. Okay, so Solidarity Salon is at 113 Spring Street in Reservoir, and we're about a minute walk from Regent um, Station, train station, so uh, that would be the, you know, the most accessible. There are buses that also um, operate around that area. 
Um, and for people who are driving, there's no parking problem whatsoever. Oh, amazing. Thank you. So now I wanted to move on to some of your reflections about your first session. Congratulations. That was on October 4th. Um, mm-hmm. I thought you could speak to uh, what the following sessions will kind of contain, how many of them are there. And yeah, do you have any reflections on that first gathering? Um, Yes. Now, that first gathering was really great because um, people, this was a matter of of dropping in like your question before. Um, And so it was like an introductory uh, session. And we, um, you know, we talked about what our perceptions were of fascism and people around the table and including Zoom being around the table are. Oops, I think we might have Uh-oh. lost Debbie there. Debbie, are you there? <laughs> we'll just check if Debbie comes back. Um, yep, give us one minute, folks. I feel like Debbie was just about to say something really interesting, so we'll try and get them back on the line. All right. Australia's energy market is broken. Right, but Co-Power gives you better energy? Nope, no retailer can control where the electrons they buy off the grid come from. But as a Co-Power member, you can vote on where 100% of revenue goes. So instead of corporate profit, your energy bill builds the world you want to be a part of. That's cool. Learn more about the solidarity economy and Co-Power today and take the power back. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter. And we're back on Thursday breakfast, 3CR 855 AM, and we will resume our conversation with Debbie. We're fine. (laughs) So you were just updating us on what went on in that first session of the study circle. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I I, I have no idea where I dropped out, but basically just to say that um, uh, we had... It was really great to have people who have been involved in anti-fascist organizing for a long time, for people who have been so just recently, and people who are new to it. So all sorts of perceptions were, were um, you know, coming out, which was fantastic. We looked at, um, you know, the Australian scene experiences with um, uh, fighting fascism over the past couple of decades. We talked about... Faulkner, how um, in 1997-98, um, Nazis were successfully kicked out of that um, uh, of Faulkner uh, by community organizing. So mm-hmm. that was a really good example, a contemporary example to be looking at and learning from. Um, so the the next session, session number two, is going to be um, next Wednesday, October 18th. Now, these sessions are at 7 o'clock, and anybody coming in person, come for dinner at 6.30, because um, it's just nice to be able to have a good meal and chat beforehand. And then it's alternate uh, fortnights uh, through December 13. So um, it's six sessions in all. Um, anybody wanting to know more about that can either check the Facebooks of uh, Radical Women Australia or Freedom Socialist Party Australia. It's all there. Or they could email Radical Women. Um, that's rw.aus at radicalwomen.org. Uh, 
and um, we're happy to send out any kind of information with a study guide and so on. Pop into Solidarity Salon, get the book, or get it mailed. Um, it's all all there to make it easy. Thank you so much. And we'll also include all of those things um, in our uh, podcast. Um, we'll link everything so you can uh, click on those and find out how to get there and how to sign up. Um, just in our final question, would do you have any future pro- projects in the works and how can listeners support the cause or maybe even do some self-directed anti-fascist learning? Yeah, sure. Um, well, uh, if, just on the question of anti-fascist work, um, uh, anybody can be working with us on, um, uh, we're working on building a defense at the community level because, as I mentioned there was Cafe Gummo and um, the threat on Lydia Thorpe and so on. So um, a defense at that level. Uh, continue to be part of confronting fascists wherever they show up. Work toward building a united front um, that brings in all targets of fascists to be joining together. So on, on that, uh, just in that area, but also related areas, um, we're, both the organizations are very active in stopping First Nations deaths in custody, um, defending LGBTIQA plus uh, people from far-right and fascist assaults and just generally for liberation. Um, we work in our unions, unionists out there. Um, if we're in the same unions, to work on democratizing our unions and making them men- member-controlled um, a fighting force for, for workers' rights, because that's all part and related to um, fighting fascism. And in terms of resources for, um, you know, anti-fascist study, uh, again, get our study guide. Um, but also there's lots of great resources on um, the websites of Radical Women and the Freedom Socialist Party. So radicalwomen.org or socialism.com Thank you so much Debbie Um, we really appreciate your time this morning and I hope you have a wonderful day Well thank you very much Lola and uh, it was great talking to you hope to see more people Accented women It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a a completely violent um, cultural milieu that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives Accented women What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the How the can country. people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are two where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast Summer Programming. Over summer, we'll be joining you with Radical Radio, including highlights from our news coverage across all of our breakfast shows. For summer grid details, you can head to 3cr.org.au forward slash summer specials. And you can also listen back to our podcast by heading to 3cr.org.au forward slash breakfast.
And now we have a very special in-studio interview with Ahmed Bakarat, who is an activist, writer and University of Melbourne PhD student. He's currently involved as one of the organisers in the University of Melbourne for Palestine group and has been involved with Palestinian activism on campus for years, including the BDS motion. Ahmed is here to talk about UniMelb for Palestine and recent solidarity actions on campus. Thank you for coming in on a bright, sunny day. Is it bright? I don't know what it's <laughs> like outside. <laughs> um, but yeah, could you tell our listeners a little bit more about you and specifically who Lockheed Martin are and why UniMelb for Palestine is advocating for the end to this partnership? Of course. I'd like to begin first, of course, by acknowledging that we are meeting and having this discussion on stolen, unceded land sovereignty of which was never ceded by the caretakers, and that this liberation struggle is completely interlinked with the indigenous struggle here, because it is an indigenous struggle there. For Lockheed Martin, I'd like to <laughs> first, of course, acknowledge that the, this is a century-long company, a, a company with a history about a century long of murder, of the destruction of innocence, and of course in the involvement of a capitalist military-industrial complex. And what I mean by that is that, for example, in World War II, Lockheed Martin's P-38 planes, which was one of the, the most uh, produced planes for the U.S. Air Force, was actually involved in over 90% of its recon missions in Europe. So at the time, almost every single strategic bombing mission was done by Lockheed Martin. So there are now millions of dead Europeans who had nothing to do with the war. And this is a war crime. Uh, which Lockheed Martin had profited off. So we're talking about a company which for over a century now has profited off the killing of innocents. And so for us, first of all, we're completely against any weapon proliferation, full stop. We think universities should have nothing to do with this. And so for us, to have a company which has had such a long history of killing people, of being so involved and of profiting off the deaths of people like us, it is completely insane for us to allow for this company to continue to profit off the research and contributions of academics and students at the University of Melbourne. So we want nothing to do with them. Yeah, absolutely. I think even discussing how broad this is and how the incredible impact that it has had and that it's still felt today. And we know that you know Lockheed Martin is not the University of Melbourne's only support of Israel. Could you speak to some of the other ways that the University of Melbourne has supported the settler colony of Israel? Of course, I think one of the worst ways and one of the most perversive ways is, is how it produces knowledge. So what mm. it tends to do is that instead of just overtly supplying it, for example, through money and, and weapons and so on and so forth, it is through the mind, it is through convincing you that this is a, a even-sided conflict, that there is both sides to this, that there is a concept such as, for example, colonial right self-defense, mm. which is rubbish, but of course it's the same concept which the Australian colonial government has used for over a century and a half. So these two things are completely interlinked, and they realize that if they criticize Israel to such an extent as it needs to be criticized, they'll be criticizing their own colonial government and their own colonial institutions. So for them, they have to sit on this needle edge where they can't criticize Israel, because if they criticize Israel, they're criticizing Australia. But they also can't provide you the tools. They don't want you to have the tools to be able to criticize Israel. Because then you'll criticize Australia. Because it's only someone who cannot see whatsoever a pattern who will look at Israel and go, hang on, isn't that exactly the same thing here? So what you'll tend to do is that, although it might not, for example, be on Israel, you might have classes on settler colonial governments. And they won't tell you a settler colonial. They'll talk about it like America. They'll talk about Canada. They'll talk about Australia. Then they'll keep missing the parenthesis, the settler colonial governments. And so they'll tell you about how, because of how long it's been, that these colonial projects have been so long, 
that they're legitimate, that now all of a sudden it's all over. But to that I say, since when has a perpetrator, since when has the accused, since when has a criminal been able to absolve themselves? Since when could they say, you know what, the crime is done, it's over, and then the victim goes, hang on, hang on, hang on. no it's not, you're still, you're still here, you haven't left. So long as you haven't left, the colonial project is still ongoing. So one of the worst ways that it supports Israel is through epistemology, it's through the knowledge production, it's through convincing people that it's over, and that criticizing them means that you're just a radical, that you're an activist, that you're far left, or in some instances far right for even thinking that Israel has a problem, that there is something fundamentally wrong with a settler colonial government. When we say, no, this should be the norm, any normal person should be able to look at those projects, whether they be here, whether they be in North America, whether they be in Israel, and say, they shouldn't exist. There is something fundamentally wrong with these projects. Yeah, 100%. It's that it is a settler colonial project, and the people living in it also uphold it, as well as the academic institutions that you know continue to demonstrate this knowledge in the curriculum, but also in the way they also suppress students for talking. As you've mentioned, definitely be called a radical or an activist just for speaking out. What does, I guess, solidarity at all levels kind of look like on university campuses when we're talking about Palestine? Of course. So, for example, for University uh, Melbourne for Palestine, our group has actually been a combination of a community, really. It's had students, it has staff, it has alumni, it even has non-connected people who just want to get involved, who want to show that solidarity. So for us, solidarity, especially at an academic institution, is the entire academic institution as a community, because this is a small community in and of itself, saying, we want nothing to do with this. We don't want this in our name, because that's what it is. At the end of the day, when those bombs are delivered to Gaza, and when they are dropped on the people, and when people are murdered and slaughtered, there is a long, long line, and this is something that the university is well aware of, and that's why as soon as you tell them that you are involved in genocide, they'll be like, oh, no, no, we're not. We've just got a partnership, or we've just got a working partnership, or we've got a working relationship. It's like, okay, well, let's keep tracing that effect. Let's trace that relationship all the way through. And so we end up with is a university, then you go one step removed, you get Lockheed. One step removed, you got the governments. One step removed, you got Israel. One step removed, and now all of a sudden you've got a bomb dropped on Gaza, or you've got the technologies required to be able to target those people. So all of these small networks are then connected. So for us, our job and what solidarity is, is joining together, especially as a grassroots organization, especially as a community-led organization, saying, we're going to stop this at the source. If this is going to continue and there's nothing else we can do, the least we can do is make sure that at least our own house is clean, then we've got nothing to do with it. And of course, it's very difficult to do that when, like I said before, these institutions are inherently settler colonial. So... There is only so much, but the least we can do is that so much, that we can do what we can so that way later on when, when we are questioned by history, when we are questioned by our descendants and they say, what did you do? We can at least say we did what we could. It wasn't a, oh, we tried, but, you know, maybe there, it was we did whatever we could. And so that's for what I would say is the drive for many of us is to at least have, if we have some power, whatever it may be, especially, for example, our staff, tenured staff who have a lot more than us, who's students, doing everything they can, meetings, emails, um, even just disruptions, refusing to uh, be involved in any, uh, what do they call them, <laughs> conferences which yep. legitimate these kind of genocides, is the bare minimum. To, the bare minimum is just to say, look, I'm taking an active stand here. The passive stance was to, was to justify genocide. The active stance is to be against it, it's to be an anti-racist. So for us, that's what solidarity is. Yeah, I think that's really beautiful to also acknowledge that there is a working relationship and it starts somewhere. And I think I have, maybe have a question about what 
do you do when you feel like you aren't doing enough? You know, maybe you're on campus and you are organizing or trying to disrupt. And as you mentioned before, you feel like you do what you can with the power that you have. Um, But maybe what would you say to a student that feels like maybe they're not doing enough? I would say, in all honesty, to have a complete and honest reflection upon yourself and what kind of power you do have. A lot of the times what drives this feeling of not doing enough is the idea that we have more power than what we actually do. So for a lot of people, they look at more powerful people who aren't doing enough. They mm-hmm. look at the staff, they look at professors, they look at business, they look at the business council, they look at the higher-ups. They go, man, if I was in their position, this is what I would do, this is what I would do. And then without realizing there's a big disconnect between the amount of power they have because they're getting paid to have that amount of power, the amount of power you have because you're paying to be there. Yep. It's, oh, I can do it. And then you realize, I can't really do all that much. But the most powerful thing you can do which is a power we all have, including the higher-ups and including anyone who even just has the minuscule amount of language, is conversation. Because when we're trying to decolonize, we have to decolonize first our minds, we have to decolonize how we see the world and how we talk about the world, our language. It's the most powerful tool we have. So for a lot of people, you might not be able to, for example, tear down the institution in one day, but if you can tear down the support for it, that's a lot. And so if you can go into your community, because we should all be involved in our community, and that's something that I feel everyone is, uh, it's an obligation on them, if you can't do much on your university campus, at least still be involved in your community, is to educate. Because for a lot of people, these deals, these partnerships, these connections between university, academic institutions, and genocide is not so clear-cut. They might not be able to see it the same way we do. And so for you, your obligation is to show that to them. It's a final way to explain it to them, a final way to educate them. Because that's what you're there to do. You're, if you're going to an educational institution and you aren't taking that knowledge away and then going to educate somebody else, then something has gone wrong. The knowledge shouldn't stop with you. And if the knowledge you've gotten is colonial, and if it's harmful, then your job is to decolonize it. It's to find a way to put the decolonial, uh, sorry, to put the decolonial objective first, and then it is to educate. It is to make sure that the buck ends there. Yeah, I think what you've stated about making sure that we decolonize our minds, especially when we're living in, you know, such a individualistic society where we feel like Mm. me alone I'm not doing enough said every single person on campus (laughs) and then coming together in a collectivist sense and yeah being part of your community redistributing that education um, and having the conversations that are often ongoing and I know that there is a right to political expression for students and staff but I guess what does this continued silencing mean for people and staff and students alike on the University of Melbourne campuses and people who are trying to express solidarity with Palestine? Because I know there was a recent suppression of grad students who were wearing cafes and they didn't get access to their recordings, even though that's typically available straight after. Yes. Uh, One of the most heinous examples, and I will redact their name out of respect for their privacy, was actually a First Nations graduate. Um... And I've got the details here, so I won't put that on the air. Uh, who had graduated from a master's, was proud. They had their kefir. And upon being presented with their certificate, had brought out a small banner. And had written on it, uh, Black Fellas for Palestine. And as soon as they had begun to open it, the camera immediately panned away. It didn't even show them for a moment. And we've got a video of that. It's on our page, if you haven't looked at our Instagram. And I'll tell you about that at the very end. And so... It had panned away until the First Nations person had completely left the stage. 
And for me, that is the most insane example, the most insane example I can provide of how suppression works. That when you have a First Nations person expressing solidarity with another First Nations struggle in Palestine, that instead of showing it, instead of at least taking a photo, and this person was not getting any photos, they didn't get any photos, any videos, nothing, was to completely turn away. Was to say, we know that you're there, but we're not looking. And this is how it works. This is how suppression works. We know that you're there, but we don't want to look. And so we're going to look elsewhere. Look at the sides, look at our right, look at our left, look off stage. We will look anywhere but where you are, because where you are is struggle and suffering and a reminder of what we have done to perpetrate that. So for a lot of these organizations, the way that suppression works is to, of course, make you feel that you are radical, and radical in a way in which is not cooperatable, like they can't cooperate with you, that you have to meet them in the middle. And rather, what I'm saying is that I am in the middle. <laughs> I'm already there. When I say that I'm against colonialism, when I say that I'm anti-racist, I'm already in the middle. For me, you're far, far, far off. But they seem to think that I've got to come to them and not them come to us. And so every single time you have a meeting, every policy that's laid down is, a, this is where we are. And if you don't want to meet us here, then you're the ones who we won't engage with. And so this is how colonialism works. This is how these institutions work. And the way in which they suppress is to, of course, make you feel that you are insane, that you, you don't belong, that your voice is, is not right to be heard, that your politics and your policy is not fit, that you cannot adequately analyze, and you cannot even express solidarity. If you express solidarity, they'll suppress it, they'll ignore it. For example, we had the Herald Sun put out a, an article saying that at first it was four, and then they edited it and said nine, <laughs> as if they had made a big jump to go from four students wearing kafias to nine. We put up a video of about nearly, I think, 30 or 40 students on just one graduation ceremony. And so the question is, if that's just one, and we've got volunteers who I want to thank, who have been there day in, day out, handing out kafias. Of course, I also want to take, uh, thank Free Palestine Melbourne. I want to thank, thank the Sitin Inifada, who has been so kind in providing us these kafias. Uh, it's... For us, it's it's how these things work. It's suppression, but it's also a misrepresentation of reality. That, oh, there's only nine, when in fact we've got maybe hundreds. And again, First Nations persons showing solidarity, not even shown, not even a photo. Yeah, it's such, it's such a disgrace because having First Nations solidarity across the world is important and to suppress that, particularly in the settler colony of Australia as well, so-called Australia. Um and lastly, what can our listeners do to support the University of Melbourne for Palestine and end the partnership with Lockheed Martin? Of course, like I said before, we're a grass-led and community-based organisation, so we are open to any volunteers, anyone with energy, skill, time and resources, or even just information, or even just to go out into your community and talk to people. It's something that we completely value, something that we are in great need for. Um, for those who don't already follow us on social media, we're on Instagram at, uh, at Unimel for Palestine, and we're on Twitter at uh, umelb4, the number four, Palestine. You'll find us there. That's where we put our information. We also have a signal group open to volunteers. There's a link in the Instagram link tree bio, which you'll be able to find in Google Form too, and you'll be able to fill that up. Um, so yes, do message us if you want to get more involved than just being in the community even like I said before, even just being in your community, telling people what's going on, talking to them, educating, that's that's more than enough. You don't have to feel that, especially for those who aren't completely involved or directly involved in the University of Melbourne, that you've got to do everything. Do what you can. That's yeah, 100%. Decolonize your mind, strike the numbers, and follow UniMelb for Palestine. Thank you so much, Ahmed, for coming so in much. today. Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. 
Join Ayan every Monday at 2.30 p.m. on 3CR Community Radio. You're here with 3CR Breakfast. During the year, we spoke to so many incredible people, and today we're bringing you some of our favorite conversations, laughs, and tunes. So stay tuned to 3CR 855 AM or stream it at 3cr.org.au via the community radio app or 3CR digital. Get ready! Woohoo! Morning, James, and welcome to welcome to Thursday Breakfast at 3CR, and thank you for making the time to speak to us about the work and goals of Block Aid Australia and some of the challenge, challenges that present themselves when working to achieve environmental and social justice. So, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. Tell us a bit about Block Aid Australia, its mission, and why you decided to join an environmental activist organisation. So I guess Block Aid Australia is a collection of people across this continent that have decided to kind of unite in a mission to create a credible opposition to Australia in a fight for climate climate justice um, alongside um, economic and social and community and kind of yeah different different sectors of the environmental movement. I guess our mission is to yeah, ultimately provide a platform where people can take direct action, take it in a meaningful way, um, and, yeah, kind of get in the way and materially stop some of the destruction that um, is so inherent in um, Australia's operations. And, yeah, I guess that, that's been done through various mobilisations. Um, as you might know, some of the mobilizations, um, yeah, they, they take place at centers of um, economic importance. Um, and so one of those, I guess, the first mobilization that Blockade Australia did was at the Newcastle Coalport. Um, and I guess that is a place that it's the largest coalport in the world. And so Australia's kind of ongoing um, project and like the the ongoing expansion and exploitation that um, it consists of relies so heavily on these types of um, fossil fuel and kind of extraction um, projects. So there was a mobilisation there for um, 11 days um, in November 2021. And, yeah, I guess the idea to, like, um, have, you know, a sustained period of direct action um, you know, getting um, in the way consistently and choosing those targets and kind of going, like, offensively towards them um, rather than just kind of being at, at a forest blockade or something or at a mine and kind of trying to defend it all the time, you know, making the system defend itself from, um, you know, a an opposition or kind of an, 
um, a direct action that's like trying to kind of yeah stop stop the ongoing um, destruction. And so that was like 11 days, um, and yeah, had a huge kind of impact on the coal industry there. A lot of the politicians and a lot of the billionaires had a little, you know, they were quite upset. Um, got on the media and stuff, and yeah, um, weren't very happy. So. Um, yeah, that was the first mobilization. Uh, there's, there was another one in, at the Port of Botany um, for five days. Um, recently, there was a mobilization that was coordinated across three of the largest ports on the East Coast. And that was, um, yeah, three to five days. I was, it was five days um, across the three ports. So, you know, every single day, um, direct action um, along some of those, like, pinch points and bottlenecks of those crucial kind of um, economic um, kind of um, yeah roles that they play, and yeah, really trying to kind of just stop stop some of the destruction um, rather than just like asking or um, you know doing awareness campaigns or something. It's it's really about getting in the way and taking that action to kind of make make that um, bit of difference that hopefully can provide an example of of what could really um, be you know in the future. Like so, I guess yeah, a call to action for the people to take. Um, a stance in that way and get in the way of of what's happening before it's kind of too late. Man, that's it's really inspirational stuff. And when you hear reports of those sort of actions, um, it's it's yeah, it's really good to see, and it's inspira- yeah, it's inspirational to the rest of us in the community that that are, uh, are hearing about it. I guess I'm also interested in what motivates you to get involved. Uh, yeah, I went to university and did a degree in environmental. Um, science and I majored in sustainability and ecology um, and I guess yeah I was always kind of just like wondering when the point was where there, where there was going to be some sort of like pathway towards you know doing something that actually allowed the protection of the environment or something like you know the reason I decided to study um, in that field but I just kept on towards the end of the degree getting pushed towards kind of entering the corporate world and like really the, the the kind of boundaries that like restrict that workforce don't really allow any change to happen and in some sense it kind of felt like I was just you know working to make it more legitimate for the system to keep kind of doing what it, what it was doing um, and at that point I just um, yeah you know started thinking um, that that obviously was not the, an avenue that promoted any kind of change or benefit to my future um, and yeah, looked around, um, um, yeah, there was lots of things happening, um, and I found that, yeah, getting on the front line and um, being able to kind of, yeah, share that story and make some sort of real difference and kind of build the community and the culture that you actually, that actually may be sustainable in the future and, like, you know, working on that every day um, was actually the most effective kind of, Thing that that would enable yeah me to have some sort of safety or security into the future. Thank you for that, mate. Thanks, thanks for giving us a bit of a personal insight into what motivates someone to commit their lives to to environmental and social justice. How big a role is the commitment to social environmental justice? How big of that is? How much of a motivator is that? It's huge. I mean, yeah, when you think about environmental justice and what that really entails. Um, it is a, you know, a, a society where you don't have these kind of like 
um, overarching powers um, and systems of domination um, that, you know, apart from, like, dominating the environment, um, dominating, like, you know, peoples and, um, um, I guess, I guess like, the economy as well and, like, wealth inequality um, and housing inequality and things like that, like, they all play roles in reaching environmental justice um, and, you know, you can't have... Um, kind of a, a, a environmentally just world where some people um, are exploiting, like, all kind of kind of um, responsible for up to seventy percent of the you know same amount of emissions as seventy the lowest seventy percent of people. Um, you know, because it's it's not really about um, everyone kind of yeah trying to do their best every day or something when there's just um, a huge kind of yeah unjust world in, in a lot of those other fields. It's, it's all really in, intrinsically linked, like the, the kind of military complex as well. Um, and it's like, it's a global problem, right? So you, you're not going to be able to like solve something on this continent because the way that we are acting affects the rest of the population and they are just going to like, the side effects there in turn come back and reflect on what happens here in Australia. So yeah, you really have to think about it in, in an in immense kind of global way. So, you, would you say that if all these things are connected, like the military-industrial complex, social inequality, env- environmental injustice? They're all connected. Totally, totally, one hundred percent. Yeah, like you know, systemic racism is, is in there as well, obviously, and sexism and um, things like that. Like that not not being able to like have um, kind of equal expression from everyone plays a role in how we act and dominate. Um, the country and the continent and the whole globe and yeah it's it's all really um connected what what type of tactics do you feel are most effective in with the contemporary general public yeah well what do you feel is most effective in getting um blockade australia's message across with with contemporary general public and why um well i guess like primarily um yeah kind of the output um through direct action is really, I guess, you know, effective in being able to materially stop some of these um, projects and stuff um, and, and machines and kind of, yeah, sites where uh, the destruction does happen. But, like, yeah, getting people to kind of do that and um, being able to empower people to go and create whatever else kind of they think is the, the most effective way to to create change is, like, yeah, secondary for sure. Um, and, like, I guess we, sharing, I guess we put a lot of emphasis into sharing kind of those skills and upskilling people. Um, so, like, yeah, holding workshops and um, being able to um, build and kind of live a different kind of culture that, that does, like, then create, like, an alternative to the current Australian one. Um, and, yeah, I guess kind of constantly um, building that uh, network of people that can kind of, you know, rely and be upskilled and um, be ready to take action is, yeah, really effective and important for the, for the kind of, for the movement, I guess. And, yeah, I think that, I think that without, um, like, actually doing those things and taking action, um, yeah, you know, your campaign um, kind of becomes just another 
yeah, speaking group or something that people may yeah understand your politics or something, but don't can't see how those politics um, might, might yeah have be 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 acted out. I guess, and I think Black Australia really has emphasis on taking action as well as kind of um, doing those upskilling things and stuff, which is definitely a motiv- major motivator for. Um, for this group, I think. What that points to is that blockade and, yeah, a blockade is it's, it's more than about um, a, a political action. It's about, it's about creating lives that are more environmentally just and living in a more environment, environmentally just way. Would you say that that's, a, that's accurate? Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's about, like, you know, being able to kind of um, provide an example... Um, of a culture that can survive and that is more, um, yeah, just, I guess, and sustainable. Um, because, yeah, it's quite hard to imagine what, you know, how, how, what other ways of living could be because you don't really get the ability to kind of, um, learn and experience that in school, obviously. And, um, yeah, without being able to kind of see that, um, it's hard to get people to, yeah, to consider, um, you know, the real change that is necessary. So definitely building that culture um, through sharing skills and just um, trying to get everyone to be ready and able to take political action if they want to. I, I remember when um, there were some people from Blockade on one, on one of the bridges in town here in Melbourne. They were blocking the traffic and mm-hmm. they were doing a great job of raising awareness of... Of, of the of the issue one of the things one of the a lot of the responses I was getting from my colleagues at work it they didn't understand why they were doing what they were doing and they mm-hmm. they saw it more as an inconvenience and I guess it's a really difficult job to educate the public the public because people are so they're so trapped in their daily lives and trying to you know like make ends meet I guess and so it's a really difficult job totally. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the messaging as well um, and kind of like the politics behind um, Blockade Australia, I guess, and that, yeah, what's been put out is that, yeah, the Australian kind of, you know, colony came here 250 years ago as a militarised resource extraction site and hasn't stopped plundering and destroying this continent um, and it needs to be stopped, I guess, you know, it needs to be halted, um, it needs to be gotten in the way of, um, and so like having that, that messaging and also doing it at the same time, yeah, is, I guess, pretty powerful, but really hard to kind of, I mean, yeah, it's been like, what, two or three years um, since the first blockade, but yeah, the media is definitely catching on um, and saying a lot of those kind of phrases, um, so yeah, it takes a bit of time and a lot of um, actions, And but yeah, it's it's possible, um, and I guess, yeah, it's not, not worth stopping for any time soon, I don't think. This summer, tune in to Health Sovereignty, 3CR's International Day of People with Disability broadcast for 2023. 12 hours of programs by people with disabilities, talking about what health well-being and body sovereignty means for multiply marginalised disabled people, their kin and communities living on unceded Indigenous lands. All the audio is available to listen back at your leisure at 3cr.org.au forward slash disability day 2023. 
or find the podcast by searching 3CR's Radical Radio on your favourite podcast app. You are what you eat and you are what what you eat eats. Local Food Connections interviews with food producers, backyard growers and urban farmers. Join us every Sunday morning at 10am on 3CR Community Radio 855 on your AM dial, on 3CR Digital Radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Local Food Connections, a show about the importance of local food in sustainable communities. And we're back on 3CR. Um, next up, I'm wondering, have you ever wanted to contribute at a rally, but you're just not sure where to start? Well, next up, you're going to find out how to take that first step. Marshalling is the perfect way to get involved and support community in the ongoing fight for Palestinian liberation and to end genocide now. Next up, we're going to hear from Bugs, a pro-Palestine activist and artist from Nam, who has marshaled over 12 rallies so far since October 7th. Bugs is going to tell us what it takes to be a marshal, how you can get involved and what to expect at your first marshalling experience. Good morning, Bugs. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us so early. I thought we could start off with a little role play. So I'm going to ask questions as the prospective um, new marshalling volunteer. So first up, I've decided I'd like to support the fight for Palestinian liberation by marshalling at a weekly rally. How do I know if I'm the right person for the job? And what is the first step in getting involved? That's a great question. (laughs) Um, so the first thing, how do I know if I'm the right person for the job? Essentially, marshalling requires a very focused demeanour and it requires a level of physical fitness. So you've kind of got to be ready to be on your feet for a few hours a day. If you can, um, and if you can do that, then that's probably all you need to have. Um, and the first step for getting involved is rocking up to the rally at 10.30 a.m., um, on every Sunday. So every Sunday we have training at 10.30 uh, and it's as easy as that. So you come at 10.30, um, we meet at the building next to RMIT um, across from the State Library and we get going from there. Great. Thank you so much. Um, so <laughs> next up, what does training look like? Because there is some training provided, right? Um, can I attend this training in person or is it online? And do you have any options for folks who come from non-English language backgrounds or from the deaf community? So, yes, we do have training and training is predominantly in person, but we do have a handbook. Um, The Community Defence Marshalling School has a handbook that allows any marshal to go over um, any marshal laws that they need to when they're not on the ground or when they're not with coordinators. Um, Our training happens two hours before every Sunday rally. You can attend the training and then not do the rally as a marshal, or you can attend the training and continue there. Um, We do have options for non-English language background. In terms of the deaf community, because of the longevity of the pro-Palestine movement, we are currently working on rally access to the deaf community. Amazing. That's really good to hear. Yeah, it's... um 
good to know that you can just kind of turn up a few hours early and be ready to volunteer at your first shift. So now, theoretically, I've finished all my training. I've read the handbook, maybe gone to the in-person training. What does a typical day of marshalling look like? What can I expect and how can I be physically and emotionally prepared for the unexpected? So a day of marshalling um, probably consists of a six-hour session. So once we have done our training, so we do a two-hour training session, uh, we assemble into teams and each of these teams is responsible for a certain section of the rally. Uh, for example, we have the koala group that lives up the back of the rally or we have the wombat group that lives up the front. Um, you can expect to see a lot of police. You can expect to make a lot of friends. Um, it's a very community-led project as everybody is on a volunteer basis. Um, to physically and emotionally prepare uh there, there's a big difference between joining the rally as a, um, as a protester and as a marshal. Uh, marshals don't participate in the rally because we're trying to form a wall between um, any people, any aggressors on the outside of the rally, so anybody who's countering the rally or any forces that may want to mess with the rally. We form a barrier between the protesters and those um, aggressors who protect the protesters and protect their rights to protest. So in terms of emotionally preparing, um, you've got to know that you can't have um, that catharsis when you're out there marshalling. So it's always good to make sure that you have some time to process the, uh, the week's bombardment um, before you arrive. And physically, I mean, just make sure those legs are nice and stretched and you've had some fruit, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some really important points there key one being that marshals don't actually um, participate in the rally in the sense that you usually would um, if you were just showing up to chant and march. Um, So next up, maybe this is a good time to go to what the top three practical things that the work of marshals provide at a rally. Could you speak a bit to, yeah, because marshals provide a lot at rallies. It often goes kind of unseen, but if you could list maybe the top three practical things that the work of marshals provides um, for protesters and attendees, yeah, what would they be? So marshals liaise with police um, to ensure that the community is aware um, of where the protest is heading. Um, if there are any deviations or disruptions planned by the organisers, uh, marshals are the people who inform the cops and let them know that Hey, this is going to happen today, so please don't, um, please don't, you know, use any kind of force on us. We're, we've got 20,000 people doing this thing, um, and we can update them on those plans. Marshals also work closely with MALs or legal observers, and they also work closely with medics. Um, so there's an inbuilt community within the rally that go, remains pretty much invisible. Um, and that, that community is there solely to ensure that if there's any conflict in the rally or if there's any aggressors um, entering the rally space to try and cause any trouble, that marshals are the first line of defence. Marshals are the first group that deal with any kind of conflict, that assist if any speakers are um, in any kind of safe or unsafe position. Um, And we make sure that when the rally lands that everybody has arrived. Um, So there's always a community of... um, a physical disability that ends up towards the back of the rally 
it's our job to ensure that wheelchair users and anybody with prams or families with lots of kids are not left behind and are not left at the mercy of any of aggressors outside the rally. Yeah, extremely important work. Um, that's something that I learned quite recently, actually, how important pacing is and that the marshals are at the back protecting us and maintaining a consistent pace. Yeah, so really important work there. Um, now, next up, I'm wondering, what do I need to bring when I'm showing up for my first volunteer shift? Or what should I not bring? Well, for a volunteer um, shift as a, as a marshal for the Sunday protest, you really need to bring... Um, a, a, a good sense of spirit and focus. Um, there are certain things, just like safety things, like don't wear open-toed shoes. Um, if you've got a scarf or a face mask or sunglasses, make sure you wear them. It is pretty important to um, maintain your own privacy. There are people at um, in, that sometimes enter these spaces to want to um, gain, uh, gain access to people's identity or you know, photograph them and document them. So it's always good to bring, like, protective wear. Um, bring a small bag with a water bottle, um, your ID, and there are usually mouths on site that can provide legal observer cards that help you if you need to talk to the police or anything. Most of the stuff that you need, you can get at the rally. All you need is bring a really good attitude. Yeah, thank you, Bugs. Um, now I know what I'm going to bring for my first marshalling shift. <laughs> Now, this next question, I don't think there is a right or wrong answer. So I'm happy for you to just, you know, speak from um, your understanding, from your experience. This is a big question. It's something I've thought about a lot personally as a brown person. Should I marshal if I've been a target or if I am a target of system if systemic racism by police? So, you know, what would your message be to black and brown folks, First Nation people, cutie pock people who are thinking about marshalling but are a bit hesitant, maybe having experienced um, violence from the police before, etc. Yeah. That's an awesome question. Um, something I've also been considering. Um, as a white person, I know the, the, the privilege that I have in these spaces um, of being able to be a police liaison and um, exist and remain fairly unscathed, if I'm honest, um, from any kind of police aggression or abuse, whereas I have witnessed um, and, you know, we have documented police abuse towards, in particular, women of colour who have been marshalling on the lines. I think my best advice is if you have any sense, uh, type of police or um, racial trauma, I would, first thing first, make sure that I'm OK, um, check in with myself and say, you know, this is something that I really want to do for the community. Is it something that I have access to this day? Um, and the nature of marshalling is you can leave at any time. Um, there is always a safety net. There is always someone you can say, hey, I'm actually not comfortable anymore. I'm going to go home. You can leave at any point. You can leave right as a policeman comes up to you. You could leave um, as soon as the rally starts or as soon as it finishes or at the start of training, um, it really is volunteerism and um, the only true purpose of marshalling is to make sure that everybody on the ground is safe and that includes any marshal. So in my opinion, if you want to give it a red hot go, give it a go. 
But keep in mind that you have the autonomy to leave that space at any time and to preserve your safety um, above all else. Yeah, that's a really great point. Thanks, Bugs, that you can leave at any time and your safety comes first. Um, yeah, so maybe this is also a good time to give a big shout out to our white allies out there who might be listening. Um, you know, if you have a body that doesn't, is not the target of systemic racism, get out there. Help us fight for Palestinian liberation. Join the team. Do some marshalling. You could just do one week and that would go so far. Um, so <laughs> next up, I wanted to ask you, Bugs, what is your favourite thing about marshalling and can you describe something that you've learnt in your time as a marshal? Oh, um, my favourite thing about marshalling is uh, feeling a sense of pride knowing that I'm helping to keep my community safe um, in the best way that I physically can when um, when there are so many communities that are not safe. Um, I would love to fly to Gaza right now and um, be able to just send people there, but the reality is that we are so far away um, from this genocide and it can feel really helpless and it can feel very lonely. Um, and marshalling has... Um, allowed me to meet like-minded people, to develop more community and uh, to feel that I am contributing towards a positive movement in whatever way I can. Um, and probably the most important thing I've learned in my time as a marshal is uh, always film. Always have your phone out. Yes. If you're if you're worried, get your phone out, um, and uh, you know never talk to the cops alone. I think that's the other one. Yeah, that's really great advice. Well, what a nice start to the morning. Thank you so much for joining us on Three CR Thursday Breakfast today, Bugs. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> I'll see you at the rally. I'll see you there. <laughs> Bye. Bye. You just heard from Bugs, a pro-Palestine activist and artist from Nam, who has marshaled over 12 rallies since October 7th. And this morning, Bugs told us what it takes to marshal, how exactly you can get involved, and what to expect from your first marshalling experience. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. I sat in the interrogation room wanting answers. You see... That's what I did. I grilled authors for the whys and wherefores. Every Thursday, 11.30, it was the same. 3CR, published or not. Who were the characters involved? What were they like? And how did the whole damn plot unfold? So stay tuned as Jan, David and Lisa apply the pressure once more to yet another author. And it's good morning from the Concrete Gang. You got the gorilla here. News, views, scallywags and sooks in our beautiful construction industry. Every Sunday, 9.30am on 3CR, 8.55 on your AM dial. Brought to you by the gorilla, Campo, the Golden Sparrow and three tenors. And anyone else we can see staggering down the street leaving the early openers. The might of the CFMEU. The Concrete Gang, every Sunday at 9.30 on 3CR, 8.55 on your AM dial. Podcast on 3cr.org.au, Spotify and iTunes. Tune in for the best laugh in town. Never forget us, the mighty concrete gang. 
You're listening to 3CR's Breakfast Summer Programming. During the year, we heard from so many incredible voices. Tune in to hear our top picks from 2023. Join us on 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital Streaming at 3cr.org.au or via the Community Radio app. And we are back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM for our final interview of today. Um, And so earlier this week, a group of Indigenous and non-Indigenous activists set up their second blockade in a month across the single access road to Pine Gap Military Facility, which is situated on Arndaland outside of Mbanto Alice Springs. And today we're going to be joined by Carmen, one of the activists who participated in the blockade and a member of Mbanto for Palestine, to discuss the relationship between Pine Gap and the ongoing genocide of Palestinians, as well as the importance of direct action in solidarity with Palestinians struggling for liberation. Good morning, Carmen. Good morning. Um, So I thought maybe you could start off by telling us a little bit about the history of the Pine Gap base and about its relationships to colonization on both Arndalands and in Palestine. So why is it such an important target for disruption? Um, So Pine Gap was um, built in the 60s and it's always been a controversial Thing. There was a lot of um, opposition by Aranda traditional owners at the time. Um, there always has been. And um, it's a very secretive... They run very secretive operations out of there that serve the US military primarily. Um, and they do also collect information for ASIO. Um, but since its inception, they've been um, involved in, um, you know, genocide and, and, and the brutality of war, which has never been supported by local traditional owners here um, or the broader community. Um, at the moment, they're focusing, one of their focuses is on Gaza and is on assisting Israel um, in the Zionist occupation over there. And um, what they do is they they collect data from satellites which primarily focus over that Swana region, the um, Southwest Asia and Northern um, African region, and they're... Um, they also they have the like capacity to surveil people and collect intelligence and communications between people, um, but they also can coordinate missile targets and things like that and and intercept. Um, you know, like if if uh, if Lebanon was um, sending missiles over, um, they could intercept it from Pine Gap. Like they can give information mm. to Israel to intercept it from Pine Gap. So they are highly sophisticated um, information and surveillance. Um, yeah, military base here in the in the middle of the desert here um, next to Alice Springs. So there's been a lot of opposition over the years. There was a peace camp um, set up in the 70s that was run by local Aranda women, and they made a call out to women um, across the country. And they were, you know, they they held that blockade for quite a long time. It's a very famous blockade. So they've been, you know, the community doesn't want them here, um, and it has been in opposition since its inception mm. um, against the, the sort of brutality that that um that comes out of that place yeah and i mean i think you know what you've you've talked about um also touches on the fact that this is not this is not some abstract or tangential relationship um it is directly implicated uh, pine gap is directly implicated in what is happening um to palestinians now to the genocide that's being perpetrated there through um 
you know, through the use of uh, tracking and, and surveillance technologies that are operated out of Pine Gap. So you were involved yeah. in the direct action shutting down the main access road to Pine Gap this past Monday. And I understand that this is the second blockade action Mpantua for Palestine have undertaken since the beginning of Israel's escalation of genocidal violence in Gaza. Um, so can you tell us a bit about how Monday went down? What were you hoping to achieve and what happened? So on Monday morning at about 4.30, it was about 30 people um, that went down. We set up really quickly, very organised um, protest. So there was two people, myself included, that locked onto a concrete barrel. And then behind us we set up a roadblock and everybody was in hives. And it was sort of this idea of, um, as a community, we're making a community safety intervention. So it was all about, like, um, shutting down these criminal... Um, operations that are happening at this particular work site. So it looked very much as people were approaching, it would have looked like um, looked like a normal roadblock, like hard hats, high vis, all that sort of stuff. And then as people got closer, they would have seen that we were locked onto the barrel and we were wearing press vests um, to honour the press in the Palestinian um, mm. journalists who are, you know, coming under like brutal siege themselves. Their families are being killed just for trying to get the word out, the truth out. Um, and so as people were approaching, they would have seen, you know, banners saying free Palestine and stop the genocide and that we're shutting down this particular facility because of war crimes. Um, and then throughout the day, we were reading, you know, um, the names of the Palestinian martyrs. And we never got past people that were under the age of one, you know, in all mm. in that all day of reading that out. And we, we listed war crimes, um, you know, the the displacement, the the broad-scale Holocaust massacres, the the targeting of children. We we were listing all of the sort of um, war crimes that have been happening, not just in the recent escalation of seven weeks, but of, you know, the last 75 years. And so mm. there was also vigil elements there. We were, we were holding vigil. Um, we were burning frankincense and we were burning candles. And um, it was about seven hours that we held the road there and we stopped about 100 or so workers from being able to attend work that day. Um, but it was very peaceful. It was very... There was no sort of... Um, neither from the police or from us, there was no sort of aggression. Um, it was just, I think, once they arrived, saw that, saw that we were locked on, knew that it was the second time mm. that we'd done it and that they were in for, you know, a number of hours to try to get us off. I think it was quite a um, de-escalating sort of way to do it because they could see, okay, we're here for hours, we're not going to do argy-bargy and start pushing people off the road. They just sort of, you know, got to the task of trying to get the fireys in to get us off. So we realised it's actually quite a good strategy to to have something really solid on the road like that. Um, in this place anyway, it could be different in other, in other cities. I know the police behave differently um, yeah. in different contexts. But, yeah, it was quite, it was a very peaceful sort of, um, very peaceful um, action. Yeah, I mean, and it's it, it's it's amazing what you guys achieved in terms of you know blocking off that road for for seven hours and, um, you know, just just by um, having a clear and coordinated plan and understanding that that holding that space and um, you know preventing people from going to work at the facility for that time was seven hours um, where hopefully uh, there were you know the. the the surveillance apparatus was undermined for for that time. Um, so I guess um, 
because we're coming up to the end of our show, um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, the, uh, you know, the importance of direct action in general um, and about holding space for honoring the lives of Palestinians and also whether you wanted to share any messages with our audience in NARM Melbourne. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, as we know, there was no there was no ceasefire or humanitarian pause. And I hope that, you know, it's a global movement. We can't afford to become complacent. We're in an upward rising um, wave that's gathering momentum at the moment. And we have to um, push harder and harder at the moment because they're, you know, we, we sort of need each other. Like there was actually another action in Melbourne at the time supporting what we were doing. Mm. Um, a bunch of people blockaded um, an office. And we need to keep um, Palestinian sovereignty at the centre of everything that we're doing. You know, um, people are being dehumanised in the press, on the ground, you know, and, and we need to hold the press accountable and we need people to find the sort of courage that Palestinians are teaching us at the moment um, to stand up and keep speaking the truth, you know. Um, there's a war machine um, that we're trying to fight here. So I, I think if people can find support amongst their own communities and build networks and try and find um, sustainable ways to keep, um, you know, pushing up against this genocide and, you know, we can, we can, we can, um, we can find strength in each other's movements you know i see stuff that's happening around the country every single day and it's and we're all drawing strength from that so even just like reposting stuff on instagram you know just keeping keeping the word out keeping mm. the conversation going um we're all we're all in this together um yeah, yeah. and then, yeah obviously like centering palestinian sovereignty and dignity and human rights and um you know strong messages of you know it's not just ceasefire, it's end the apartheid land back, you know, yeah, sovereign land back to sovereign Palestinian people and justice for war crimes. Absolutely. It's about it's about liberation, not uh, not a return to apartheid status quo. So absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much, Carmen, for joining us this morning. Thanks for talking to me, Priya. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that was Carmen, who was one of the activists uh, who participated in the blockade uh, on the access road to Pine Gap on Monday um, on uh, Arnda country outside of Mbantua Alice Springs and a member of Mbantua for Palestine. And we just spoke about the relationship between Pine Gap and the ongoing genocide of Palestinians. Hey, Anne, Mm. where else would you hear about progressive economics? Well, you can definitely hear about it on 3CR Radio Radio MMT between 5.30 and 6.30pm the second and fourth Friday of each month. Radio MMT. Every Wednesday at 11am, join me, Bunzolini, at the fire in Community Radio 3CR. Three hours of historically informed, critical analysis of Aboriginal affairs and the ongoing political movement for land rights, treaty, sovereignty 
and the cessation of genocide. Featuring the best of black music. Bundles Fire, 11am to 2pm, every Wednesday on Community Radio 3CR. I thought we might close out today's summer special program where we've been listening back to some amazing interviews over the last year on Thursday morning breakfast with a wonderful track by Palestinian Melbourne-based musician Yara from their EP Lonely Love Affair, This Is Hard Thing.
And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast's summer special programming. And that was a track by Yara called Hard Thing from their EP Lonely Love Affair. And as a reminder, Yara is a Palestinian Melbourne-based musician and you can uh, support their music and listen to much more of it by heading to yaramusic.bandcamp.com. That is Y-A-R-A music.bandcamp.com. Now, I wanted to take you through uh, what we listened to in today's show, and uh, it was an excellent selection, if I do say so myself, of some of the best interviews that we did late last year about community organizing and grassroots action. So this summer special for this week focused on people taking action where they're at to try and affect change for social justice. So we had a wonderful lineup. First up, we heard a conversation that Leela had with a member of the Radical Women and Freedom Socialist Party about building unity against fascism, which was the sixth session study circle co-hosted by Radical Women and Freedom Socialist Party in Reservoir last year. And it was basically geared towards uh, increasing people's knowledge and skills uh, to take action in their everyday lives and to uh, foster some critical thinking in uh, a collective environment. We also heard from Ahmed Barakat, who had spoken with Inez earlier last year. And Ahmed is a University of Melbourne PhD student and organizer with the University of Melbourne for Palestine group, which is currently fighting to get the university to end its partnership with Lockheed Martin, uh, one of the war profiteers that is very much complicit in the genocide of Palestinian people in Gaza. Uh, we also heard an interview with James from Blockade Australia that spiked it. And this is one part of a three-part series. So the first part aired on the 12th of October. And you can head to 3cr.org.au forward slash Thursday dash breakfast to hear those other parts of the interview as well. But this one was the beginning of a conversation about Blockade Australia's mission and the network which helps to build a political movement that can physically resist Australia's planet-destroying operations with disruptive and targeted action shutting down the everyday functioning of the machine. We also heard a wonderful interview that Leela conducted with Bugs, who's participated in marshalling, I guess, fairly recently for the Palestine protests that have been running every Sunday. And Bugs talks about what it's like to be a marshal and how people can get involved. And I really hope that's inspired some of you to think about other ways you can more creatively get involved in supporting uh, solidarity actions uh, with Palestine, as well as other solidarity actions you may be interested in marshalling for in Invasion Day, which is coming up. Um, I know that warriors of the Aboriginal resistance, if they're running an event, will be putting a call out for marshals, so people keep an eye out. And finally, you heard a conversation that I had with Carmen, who's a member of Mbantwa for Palestine and who was involved in blockading the access road to the Pine Gap military facility, which is situated on Arnda land and uh, which is basically involved in the surveillance apparatus that allows Israel to target Palestinians via Australian soil and uh, the capacities at this military facility, which sifts through data and uh, satellite readings to uh, uh, I guess, improve precision targeting. So important, again, to think about all of these complicities together. And I hope that the interviews that we included in today's summer programming special uh, gave you a chance to reflect on the different ways that you might be able to take action from where you're at. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. <laughs> 
Hi, my name's John A. Tate, and I've collected hundreds of songs about footy and sport. So we've put together a program called The Sporting Record. Hang on. It's not all about your records, John A. Em and I are also here to cast a critical 3CR eye over all things sport. Join John, James and me every Thursday at 4pm for The Sporting Record, right here on 855 3CR. Kicking off on Thursday, August 25th at 4 o'clock. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.